recording, Josh. And switched over to the other screen. Wonderful. How many verses in the Bible do you know of speak about prayer? Anyone know? You haven't counted them up? There's about 500, right, that talk about prayer. Do you know how many verses in the Bible talk about faith? No? There's around about 500. It's around 500 verses on prayer and faith. And, you know, they're pretty big topics, so it's pretty good that there's a good amount of teaching on those. How many do you think there are on money? Anyone has it a guess? Yes? There's actually around two, over 2,000 verses that speak on money. Who would have thought? And so, I know that you're really excited about this, but I'm going to be preaching on money today. <laughs> wow. Did, <laughs> did you feel that in the room, though, when I said the thing that must not be named in churches? I said money. But I don't think I've actually preached on money, I think, at all in my nearly three years here. So we're doing pretty good if I haven't really spoken on money until today, right? But I want to dig into this a little bit so that you know that it shouldn't be an anomaly to preach about money, all right? One in every 10 verses in the New Testament deals with money. One in 10 verses. 16 of the 38 parables of, the, of Jesus deal with money. 25% of Jesus' teaching addresses financial resources. Okay, I mean, can you imagine if one out of every four sermons, if once a month we were doing a money sermon? Could you imagine that? Here's what's crazy about that, right? I would be much more aligned with Jesus' ministry if I did that than I am right now. And yet, in our age that we live in, there would be much more scepticism if I actually was lined up with Jesus' ministry at all. But here's one for the cynic in us. Jesus does all this teaching on money and never takes up an offering. Interesting. He does all these all this teaching on money and he never asks for any of it. So why? Why would I be preaching on money? Well, in the Sermon on our Mount, which is where our reading comes from today, Jesus is ruthlessly going after the heart above the action. He wants your heart. And the fruit of a heart transformed is the action. And yet what we see in the New Testament is somehow that money, it can kind of, of wave, weave itself into us in a way that's, that's toxic, toxic and destructive or freeing and life-giving. So before we get into the message today, let me pray. Lord, as we approach this, this topic that you have spoken so much about,
May you speak and may we listen. May we hear your heart. May you lead us to be generous and may money be freeing and life-giving in our lives and not toxic and destructive. Amen. So have you got your Bibles with you? I'd like you to open them up to Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to be starting at verse 19. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Um, we always preach from the Bible. So if you want to bring them along every week, you'll always find that we're preaching from that. Uh, so let's start Matthew 6, verse 19. It says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, for where thieves uh, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye of the lamp, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So what you see right out of the gate here is don't do. Don't do. Don't do this. But what I want to do is I want to reorient our hearts around the idea, around this idea. Jesus said to lay up for yourselves treasures, right? He said, lay up treasures. And that's a positive thing. Jesus wants you to store up treasures for yourself. He just wants you to do it in a particular way. And so the do not hear is trying to save your spirit from anxiety and the desire to be God. So, so don't do it in such a way that you feel like you've got to control it. You've got to manipulate it. I mean, you've got it right where moth and rust and thieves destroy. That's where we all have it all, right? But he's reminding you that you control less than you think you do. So you, you and I, see, we are stuck between Ecclesiastes and Job. And if you don't have a church background, then let me try to explain that. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon, the richest man probably on earth ever, decides to test and see what might be enjoyed under heaven, under the sun. So he's got all the money in the world. And so he starts throwing a party, and then he starts trying women, then he tries real estate, and he tries absolutely everything. And when his grand experiment of what pleasure there is to be had in life finishes, here's what he says. It's all meaningless. I mean, this is a trillionaire who, who positioned his heart to figure out if there was any enjoyment to be had in all of the pleasures under the sun, and he comes back and goes, it's all meaningless. But you're never going to learn that lesson. I'm never going to learn that lesson. We are never going to be wealthy enough to learn that lesson. You see, we're stuck between Solomon, who's a trillionaire, and Job, who lost everything. You know, and Job, who lost everything, finds out that God is enough. 
And Solomon, who has everything, finds out that stuff can't satisfy this human soul. But you and me, we haven't lost everything. And we certainly don't have the kind of wealth that Solomon had. If you do, then come and see me. (laughs) So we're stuck in this place where we're just like a little bit more trying to satisfy. Like like just just a little bit more might finally put us at ease. Just a little bit more and I'll, I'll feel safe. And the Bible says, hey, don't start believing that lie. A little bit more. Uh-uh. Don't start believing that lie. Don't invest where moth and rust can destroy and where thieves can break in and steal. Don't invest in such a way. Don't spend your money in such a way that you're constantly worrying about it or you're trying to make it a thing that it can never be. See, there is not enough money on earth to keep you physically healthy forever. There is not enough money on earth to guarantee relational peace and stability. You know, the conflict in your relationship has nothing to do with how much money you have. You can't buy your way to peace. You can't buy your way to happiness. You can't buy your way out of depression. The Bible is saying, don't invest here. Let me use this example. My first car was given to me by my parents. It's a 1984-85, it was a 1984-85 Ford Laser. And it was nowhere near as good as the one in this picture, by the way. (laughs) This one is like El Primo. Mine did have a sunroof, useless in Tasmania. Um, But as I was, I mean, mean, this car was built the same year I was, right? And so as an 18, 19 year old, getting given your first car, I mean, mum and dad gave it to me because they didn't pay for uni like they did for my brothers. They said, here, have a car instead. so, so um, this car, being the, the youngest of three boys, I was the, the third to learn to drive in it. I was the third to get my peas and drive it by myself. And so by then, my oldest brother had already crashed it. And so the front left panel, you know, well, that was yellow, but not the same yellow, if you know what I mean. And um, uh, it, it, it was you know, a car. It got me from point A to point B, usually okay. Uh, and that was the car that we had when Kelly and I first that, uh, got married. That was my car. And she had a little red one that was a year or two older than mine when we first met each other. But, um, you know, when I was in this yellow car and I was looking for a park, I didn't worry about how close I was to anything else or how close somebody else might have got to me. I didn't go and seek the car park away from everyone, you know, just so that no one would ding it. I didn't think about that ever. So it was just one of those things. I didn't care if it got dinged or a trolley scraped it or or I, I, you know, rubbed up against it with a belt buckler and it sort of scratched it. It's okay, not a problem. I mean, I hardly ever even used to wash the car let alone care deeply if it got dented or scratched. However, after we were married, we bought a Holden Commodore VX Series 2 S back. And uh, this was not new, it was secondhand, but new to us. I was only, you know, three years old and it was in immaculate condition. It was bright red and I loved that car. I still think it's the best shaped body Commodore of all of them ever. And 
I would consider where I parked that. I would wash it and keep it looking nice and shine the tyres. I was so sad and devastated when I backed into another car out of our driveway. So opposite our driveway in Adelaide, there was this big dark green hedge. And so in the shade of that hedge, someone parked their dark green car. And so didn't even see the car. And now, I was really sad when I banged that. And I was just as annoyed when Kelly dinged it a few times. Although I always said to her that it wasn't a problem. It's just a car. I still say that all the about every car. Don't worry. It's just a car. Deep down inside, there's a little wince. I was really sad in 2011 when the transmission started to go and I thought it's time to move it on and buy a different car because I didn't want to have to replace the transmission in the car. Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong to look after nice things. We should be good stewards of what God has given us. You know, why not wash your car and take all the bird proof so it doesn't, you know, mark it. But the point is to illustrate that we shouldn't invest where things can be destroyed. Like a car's a car. Yeah, look after it, but it's a car. Don't invest in such a way that your concerns are always on earthly things and not on heavenly things. You know, Jesus then tells us where to invest. He says, invest in heaven now. So what does that look like? How do you invest in heaven? Well, if we follow the narrative arc of Scripture, this begins with the idea of investing in heaven. actually begins... In Genesis chapter 14, where Abraham gives 10% of everything he has to Melchizedek. Those who know Hebrews know about Melchizedek and how all that works out. And then moving forward, God establishes his covenant with his people in Exodus. And the idea of the tithe or the first 10%, 10% of what comes in is given to the Levites who worked in the temple who worked in the tabernacle. And so, so the tithe was a standard baseline. That's how God's people were to invest in heaven. And then the question is, does the tithe hold over into the New Testament? And so you'll find that there's been many scholars who argue about this. And those arguments go down many, many rabbit holes. Just invest some time into that if you really want to drain the life out of yourself. You know, some even say that when you add up all the offerings of the Old Testament, it actually turned out to be more like 20% of the household income that was given uh, to the Lord each year. But that some people say, well, that's offset now by taxes because the government through state welfare now does things that the temples and churches would back then. So it's, it's like, you know, just mess. It's a mess. It's a mess. So, you know... Remember I said right throughout the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going for the heart, not the action, but the heart, a changed heart will transform your action. So, you know, God reveals his heart to us in that giving to him is something he appreciates and actually desires. Do you know, my family, we've always used 10% as a guide to start from. You know, we give 10% of our wage and 10% of that goes to the place that is spiritually forming us. And so, you know, I'm not, I'm not just pastor of this church, but I'm a member of this church. 
this is our church home and so this is our church family and so we give as followers of Jesus are encouraged to. In, in Matthew 23, 23, Jesus says this to the Pharisees and the scribes. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And so he, here's what Jesus is teaching. He says, Hey, you've missed my heart you've obeyed the letter of the law but you've missed my heart what you should have done was both the scribes and pharisees were so intent on obeying the law to the letter of the law down to the most insignificant detail they completely missed god's heart for them you know to them it became a badge of pride that they even tithed 10% of the herbs they picked from the garden. You know, like, really? That's just completely missing God's heart, which is not just to meet the letter of the law, but generously meet the needs of others. And so our giving isn't tied at just 10%. We give to projects, missions, and, and things where God leads and directs us as well. And so in the Bible, we see that a tithe went to the tabernacle or the synagogue or the temple, depending on which time period it was. But then what happens in the New Testament after the Holy Spirit falls at Pentecost is we just don't read anything about tithing anymore. In its place, you start to see radical generosity seeming to seemingly take the place of tithing among the people of God. Look with me at Acts 2.45. It says, They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, doesn't that sound like a cult? You know, like, can you imagine if all of a sudden I noticed that my neighbour who has this really nice car, if all of a sudden I noticed that it wasn't there anymore. And so I said to my neighbour, hey, you know, what's, what's happened to your really nice car? Is it in the shop or something? And he goes, oh, well, you know, there was, there was people in my church um, and they sort of fell on, on hard times. And so well, I thought, you know what, actually, we can just sell that car and we can meet their needs. There's some people who had some medical bills and so we sort of helped pay for that as well. And, and we, 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 you know, like if, some, if you had that, that conversation with anyone, you'd think they were nuts and that they were part of some sort of cult, wouldn't you? Like, to be honest... Like, that's, that's not sensible thinking for, for us in, in our culture. But that's kind of like what's happening here. It seems crazy, but that's what's happening here in Acts. The world's getting turned on its head. See, there was no sin link in Rome. It was the church. And 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 7, it says, The point is this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I love this. You you see how serious God is about your heart? He's like... I don't want you to give reluctantly. I don't want you to be like, oh man, I've got to do this and, you know, give under compulsion. And then he says, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now the Greek word for cheerful here is the word hilaros, which we get hilarious from. God loves a hilarious giver. 
Like, can you imagine that? Being hilarious as we give, not just a happy one. It, it makes you sound crazy, like you're part of a cult with our generosity. But this is a picture of the kingdom. It's like completely upside down economics. And lastly, Timothy 6, 17 and 19 says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Now, now, now let, me just, let me just be honest here right now. It says, as for the rich in this present age, that's all of us. Don't, don't look around and say, hey, hey, Aaron, that's not me. I reckon it's them, but it's not me right? We are all rich. Everyone in this room is rich in this present age. Now, you might feel pinched and paralyzed because of financial decisions that you've made in your life in this area, but by world standards, you are rich. You're in Australia. By world standards, you are the top 1%. We're just spoiled in the West. So, so this text is for you. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I love that last sentence. You know, there's a story that's being presented to you and me of what the good life is. It's every time you turn on the TV, it's every ad, every picture in a magazine, it's a lot of stuff on your feed. Here's the good life and it's comforts and it's self-indulgence. It's the good life. And Paul says, hey, if you'll be generous with that, you'll actually take hold of what's truly life. Paul's quoting Jesus who said it's better to give than to receive. And you know there's actually sociological data, not that we need it to confirm, the, 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 the validate what the Word of God says, but there is sociological data that shows that the happiest people tend to be the most generous people. And I said before, Jesus addresses the heart. Now did you know that, that, that we are the best liars to ourselves? We are the best liars to ourselves. You know, we can justify just about anything. Oh, yeah, damn it, Coles. Look, I'll just get those donuts because they're on special, right? You know how many times that has gone through my mind, right? They're on special. They're only $2.50 instead of $3. So, of course, I'll just grab them. You know, I don't need them. Like, but we can justify. We can lie to ourselves so easy. We are the best lies to ourselves. Matthew 6, 21, you know, shows us our deepest reality. It shows us where our affections are. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, Timothy Keller wrote this, and he said, money flows effortlessly to that which is its God. Money flows effortlessly to that which is its God. Now your money is just going to flow without any effort to whatever you worship. 
one of the ways you can really pay attention to what's going on in your heart is to lay out how you're spending your money and let it tell you the story of what you really value. Now, I don't want anybody today to feel guilty or hopeless. And here's what I mean. I think radical generosity and living the way Jesus demands requires financial margin. And by that, I mean, do you have the capacity to bless? Now, if you're spending too much money on things, that means you can't be generous, then you can't afford to spend too much money on things. I mean, for example, if, if you can't afford to be generous, but every day you go to work, five days a week, you buy a coffee, there's $5 a day, $25 a week, or over 1200 bucks a year. Maybe you should get Makona <laughs> if you can't afford to be generous. I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying coffee is bad. I'm, I'm not saying that, uh, you know, you shouldn't enjoy what, uh, you know, got the, the good things that God has given us. And for some of you, coffee is one of the good things that God has given you, right? Um, there, there's nothing wrong also with, with having a nice house or a nice car or enjoying good coffee. But if you, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. If you can do all that and still have margin to be generous and gracious to those who have great need. And so if you can, great. You know, the command is to live in such a way that we're trying to... That, uh, sorry. The command is not to live in such a way that we're trying to be God and we're controlling everything in our lives and we haven't got anything for anyone because we've got to take care of us. That's the opposite of Christian living. So how we use our money it reveals our affections and our deeper realities of what we actually value and it also helps us be honest about how we see the world. You know, I love when Jesus has a go at the Pharisees because they're out there giving all these amounts of money and having trumpets sound and, and all the fanfare and basically throwing a party because they're giving to the temple. And Jesus says, look at this woman. She's got absolutely nothing, but she's found two tiny worthless coins to rub together and she's giving those. She's the one whose heart is after me. You don't have to have much to be generous. It's not about having heaps of money to be generous. You can be generous with other things than finances as well. You can be generous with your time. You can be generous with kindness. You can be generous with your spirit. You can be generous by helping other people. It is not just about money. Verse 22 says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? See, Jesus is now talking about how you see the world around you in a real way. How you see God working in the world around you. It's incredibly important that we understand the Trinity and how it is such good news and such a big deal that God is three in one. That God is Father, God is Son, God is Holy Spirit, distinct yet one. Because this is what sets us apart from every other philosophical and religious belief in the world. We believe that the essence of God is self-giving love. God is love. He is not just loving, 
He is love because he is three in one. No other religion can claim that God the Father loves God the Son, God the Son loves God the Father, God the Father loves the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit loves the Father, and the Holy Spirit makes much of Jesus. It's this dance of delight that we are invited into. And if God in his essence is self-giving love and the Spirit dwells inside all of us as believers, then should we not over a period of time become more and more and more generous as we receive the generosity of God? The generosity of God is staggering. And yes, that's certainly displayed in our salvation. But have you ever thought about how superfluous creation is? Like beauty. We don't have to have beauty to exist. We could function without beauty. What does God do so generously though? He makes all things beautiful. I mean, food is one example, you know, of, of the beauty, of the generosity of God. I mean, it has this really distinct and beautiful taste. That's generosity because it doesn't serve any purpose in keeping us alive, right? There's plenty of stuff to eat that will keep you alive and is not wonderful, Think of steamed zucchini. By the way, there are free zucchinis on the bench out of our garden. Feel free to take any of them that you like. What about oatmeal porridge? Right? You could name more according to your taste buds, but God in his generosity says, don't just be sustained, enjoy. Don't just be sustained, marvel. And he gives that to even those who hate him. That's generosity. This is the generosity of God. And of course, his generosity was also displayed in this, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. How about this for generosity? He takes every bit of your rebellion and your sinfulness from you and gives in its place the righteousness of God in Christ so that you are holy and spotless and blameless in his sight. So if we see the generosity of God, then we are able to walk in the light of that generosity and be generous people. If we think that God, however, is stingy, that God is trying to rob from us and God is keeping from us, then we will live in such a way that we operate with a scarcity mentality. That God has, has not been generous, so I'm not going to be generous. But to experience the generosity of God over time is to become generous people. The last point is from verse 24. No one can serve two masters for either you will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You know, the word for money there is actually the word mammon, which, which is a word for money. But, but, but it's, it's deeper than that. There's, there's some kind of spiritual reality at play when it comes to money and how money and the human soul works. And Jesus is warning here that you are being shaped by your world in ways that you are unaware. 
You know, we recently went up to um, Warali and swam in the river under the bridge. It's a lovely spot. Um, there's a little swing like rope that the, underneath the bridge. You can jump out and have heaps of fun. But the river's been up, right? And it's been fast. And I decided to go up a little bit past the bridge and to step out. And it's a little bit shallower there, you know, sort of no, 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 no deeper than this. And I thought, I'll just try and plant myself here against the current. And within about a millisecond, my feet were gone. Even my heft couldn't keep me planted. And I was down the river and past the bridge and, and basically you know, down towards the, the, the shallows in 10 seconds flat. It was fast. That is what our life is like. We are always in the middle of the river of life that is pushing and pulling us and trying to shape and inform us of how life works. And Jesus says, in the midst of all that, watch your wallet. Because your wallet's going to show you what you actually love and value. And if you begin being swept downstream, you'll not believe, you'll not trust, not lean into me, you'll lean into yourself and you'll build phony protection that's no real protection at all. You'll build up storage bins which will not be able to save you and you will not trust in me, you will trust in yourself. Watch your wallet. Lest you abandon me and think that you can build a better world. And that's a terrifying idea that, that you'll not serve me in money he says, you'll serve me or money. It boils down to either two ways of thinking. There's either this, everything I have is his, or the, I worked hard for this mentality. And those are two different, very, very different mindsets. You know, one is God gave me these things to steward. I'm the owner of nothing. I am a steward of everything. It's a very different mindset to the one that says, I worked hard for this and I'm going to spend it like I want. You know, the second one's not necessarily sinful. I mean, the Psalms are full of rejoicing, enjoying good food and the like. It's just that they're crummy gods. They are not worth living for. And so it's not that we're, we aren't meant to enjoy what God has given to us. It's that we, were meant to, we weren't meant to be owned by enjoyment of those things. So what's the way forward? Well, I think it starts with asking some challenging questions and then it flows into changing your mindset. You know, for those couples here, I would encourage each of you to have a conversation about money this week. Ask yourselves, uh, you know, are we reflecting God's generosity with our finances? Are we operating with financial margin so we can be generous? Where are we with our finances? Are we committed to moving to a generosity mindset how are we going to move to being generous? And maybe it might start in other areas of your life before it hits your finances. I don't know. You know, imagine how we could change the Northeast if we were all to move to a heart of generosity that flowed out of all of us. And that's not just with our finances, but with kindness and time too. Can you imagine the change we could bring and the hope that we could sow if when out for a meal even, we were to ask if we could be praying for our waiter? What could we be praying for you for? If we were to give generously of our time to community groups, 
if we were to be generous in our personality and how we interact with others. And I pray that each of us would grow our heart of generosity. Let me pray. Holy Father, there is nothing we have that you have not given us. All we have and all we are belong to you, bought with the blood of Jesus. To spend everything on ourselves and to give without sacrifice is the way of the world that you cannot abide. But generosity is the way of those who call Christ their Lord, who love him with free hearts and serve him with renewed minds, who withstand the delusion of riches that choke the world, whose hearts are in your kingdom and not in the systems of this world. We are determined by God's grace to increase in generosity until it can be said that there is no needy person among us. That reflects your heart, Lord Jesus. We are determined to be trustworthy with such a little thing as money that you may trust us with true riches. Above all, we are determined to be generous because you, Father, are generous. It is the delight of your daughters and sons to share your traits and to know what you are like to, and to show what you are like to all the world. Amen. Amen. Well, I hope that this morning's message on money hasn't been too scary for you. And uh, maybe we'll see if it's three years before I preach on money again. Um, but...